one thing that we have to think about is what is our superpower? And what I mean by that is maybe we're not superheroes at everything. No, I can't go and analyze 10,000 lines of Excel data. No, I can't go off and create a beautiful PowerPoint deck that'll convince the board to change the direction of the company. No, I'm not a superhero in everything. But the good news is no one is a superhero in anything either. So if I'm to pick one superhero power that I can market myself on, what is it? Hey there, welcome to the Deep Dive Lab. Each episode, we'll sit down with experts and thought leaders to get a glimpse into their world. We'll take you on a journey behind the scenes to explore all the different industries from tech to business, healthcare, and design. I'm your host, Jacintha Kurniawan. This week, we have Jeremy Wu. Jeremy is a human capital professional based in London. He started his career in Canada in the consulting industry and has since moved to the UK in an in-house role at a fast-growing tech company. He's a proud alum of the University of Calgary and University of Alberta. Outside the office, Jeremy is an aviation enthusiast and a curling fan. Thank you, Jeremy, for joining us here at the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Jacinta. I am so excited to be here with you and be one of your chosen guests for the show. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. When I first met you, you were just passionate about everything that you do. So thank you, Jeremy, for joining us here today. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Today, we will explore the world of human capital and we will dive deep into all of the challenges, the shifts in skills. We'll end with some of the actions that we can all take to remain relevant But first, let's start off with you. So your role is a global compensation manager, and you previously worked in a global consulting firm. So what do those roles entail? So I started my career at Mercer, which is a really large global consulting firm. I was based in our Calgary, Canada office in in Western Canada. And I started off my career as a new grad as an analyst. So what that entailed was working with more senior consultants to help them develop, analyze, and articulate compensation strategies for some really large and also medium-sized clients as well. That involved diving deep into market data, understanding the market for talent for our clients, analyzing data, understanding what that is telling us, building a story, and then bringing it to the client to help them come up with a call for action and understand how to implement some of the solutions that we were coming up with. As I grew throughout that time, I transitioned to more of a project leadership role and eventually a client leadership role where I was taking the lead in selling the work, helping develop a plan for that work, being the go-to contact for the client and helping them solve their most difficult human capital problems, mainly in compensation, but also helping them make the most of their investments in their employees. That was a good way to build up to my next question, actually. What is the biggest challenge currently in human capital? Wow. Great question. We're right now, I think we're seeing a huge generational shift. And the numbers would tell us that the demographics are rapidly changing within our workforce. 
we have a very large population of baby boomers, many of whom mm. are still working, who have, were born from the time of the end of the Second World War right up to about 1964, 1965. And they're our largest demographic group that we've really seen. And now as they enter those retirement years or years where they're looking to slow down and maybe take off some of that workload and enjoy the fruits of their labor, our workforce is shrinking. And this demographic shift means that there are less, less working people, but still the same number or more consumers as the population grows and as people age and we have this graying population, particularly in Western countries. So as human capital practitioners, that really begs the question, what do we do about this? How do we do more with less people? How do we create more value with less people to actually do the work and create that value? You know, there's lots of talent issues, attitude changes, behavior changes that we could talk about as well. But fundamentally, I think the real challenge will be overcoming this demographic shift, this demographic wave that has been coming at us and is now materializing in a very big and sometimes scary way. When you say the change in demographic, do you also then refer to this shift in skills as in what was previously deemed valuable is now sort of replaced by other skills? So for like admin work, a lot of repetitive work is now being replaced by machines, a lot of automation and whatnot. And so now skills that may be more valuable is how to use these tech tools. So are you referring to those shifts in skills as well? I think that's part of it, and that's part and parcel of that shift as well. Perhaps different generations we know from research value different things. And whereas baby boomers may have valued one thing, the newer, younger generations, the millennials, Jen said, place more emphasis on those technical skills. But that also is a result of the changing workplace and how things are changing mm. and, and how we approach work on an everyday basis. So definitely related. And one is causing the other and having an effect on the other as well. So a bit symbiotic, if you will. And how, how do you solve that? So this kind of gets into this skills conversation that so mm -hmm. many of us are having. One, we don't today just need labor. We don't just need hard workers, people who can get the work done. Today, we need problem solvers to tackle on the, the grand challenges that we're seeing. Sure, the demographic shift is one of them, but we're also seeing problems of unprecedented size as well. Climate change, social unrest, geopolitical turmoil. Today, we need problem solvers, not just workers. And I think to solve that demographic shift, we're going to have to get more creative than just throwing labor at it, throwing human capital at getting work done. We need to find better ways of doing work and better ways of solving problems. So today, the hard worker might get you a long way in your career. Sure, tomorrow the skill set will be creativity, innovation, and solving problems the big problems that we face as a society. How do we build better problem solvers? Oh my gosh, these are such great questions. <laughs> Thank you, know, you. One thing, if you're a student or if you're mm. a soon-to-be student, one great way to build that skill is through case competitions. Something that mm. business students are super familiar with, case competitions train us to take a really big problem 
break it down into pieces and figure out the most effective ways of solving those problems. So the more that you can use case competitions, the more that you can participate and understand them, the better prepared we are to face these big problems and bring important ideas to the table. But Mm -hmm. also it's incumbent on managers, on our leaders and organizations to take responsibility for growing the next generation of problem solvers. And sometimes that means letting them run with an idea and find a solution as well. I think oftentimes when we give advice, we think about what junior people can do more of to get ahead, to build their careers. But at the same time, I think to solve these really big problems and help grow that skill set. It's incumbent on our leaders to participate in that process as well and make sure that we're doing the best we can to nurture those problem-solving skills to help the next generation overcome those challenges. I have like 5,000 questions after that. But my first question actually, re-case competition. So I did case competitions in an MBA. I couldn't agree more. I feel like I was exposed to different industries. My first question to you is, Oftentimes, a critique with consultants is they're not specialists in the field and they're more of a generalist. We use frameworks and we apply it. What are your thoughts on solving a problem? Do you need a specialist? Do you need a generalist? Do you need both? What are your thoughts? Definitely need both. And that's actually really funny that you mentioned it because I was a very much a specialist consultant really mm-hmm. within the world of compensation and rewards. But I always took, as a consultant... And actually, as I work in house now, I always take the approach of the consultant and people in house with the in house expertise or or industry specific expertise or subject matter expertise really have this collaborative relationship. One brings best practice knowledge from across industries, from across companies, whereas the other is the expert in their particular organization or within their industry. One or the Mm -hmm. other won't solve the problem alone because they don't see all the sides of the issue. It's so important for consultants to work in very close collaboration with their client and for the client to work collaboratively and communicate openly with their consultant as well. If you don't do so, then the solution's aren't going to be as rich and frankly, probably aren't going to solve the problem either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it brings this more colorful picture and you're really seeing the whole picture. The challenge though is differing opinions. How do you solve that and how do you approach a problem where you both have very different opinions or at least would like to approach it differently? I'm naturally conflict averse. I hate conflict. I don't want to disagree with people. (laughs) Same. (laughs) There you go. So definitely my approach is to run away from conflict. Well, it was. In my professional life, I really do believe that conflict is the heart of coming to the best ideas and the best solutions. First of all, always important to take personality out of it. Take personal beliefs and biases out of the equation as much as you can. Second, I think that's important is a reliance on both data, but also with some intuition as well. So make sure that the decisions that you make 
are backed up by really solid data, whether that's market intelligence, whether that's internal trend data, forecasting tools that you can use. Make sure that your decisions are data-based, but intuition influenced. So making sure that you use the judgment of all the people at the table, not just one or two, but use a judgment of all the people at that table to come to logical and reasonable conclusions using that data. And then second thing that I recommend doing, making sure that there's an open and honest and comfortable forum to share those ideas openly. And sometimes that means as deliberate as setting up a quote unquote safe place to share those ideas. Starting off by a meeting by saying, there truly are no bad ideas. We really want everything out on the table. Let's talk in a non-judgmental way about how we're going to solve X problem. And that can really help set the stage for a really productive and meaningful conversation. And finally, when you're solving a conflict, you can't pull rank. The senior person doesn't necessarily have the best idea. And sometimes they plain don't have a bad idea. So Mm -hmm. what we have to make sure we're doing is we're, we're listening to each other and we're understanding each other in order to resolve the conflict and truly get to the best idea that will resolve our challenge to the best of our abilities. Yeah, absolutely. I am glad you brought about the safe place phenomenon. I'm not too sure if you've heard of this case with Boeing where they have a really what they call psychological fearful environment where people don't really feel like they can speak up. And one of the engineers actually knew that there was a problem with the machines and it actually did end up to one of the big cases of the crash at Boeing. And this whole idea of psychological safety really just grew in in popularity and everyone's talking about it now. How can managers further promote a psychologically safe environment where people can just speak up and share their ideas no matter the rank? I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know if I have Mm -hmm. the best answer, but with many years of working with clients and now internally of people with differing ideas, one of the most important things is communicating up front the expectations that people do speak up, that that's normal for people to speak up, and that there won't be repercussions for speaking up. So setting the stage for a fruitful conversation is really important. But also, it comes down from messaging from the top, too, right? We want an empathetic culture. We need Mm -hmm. a culture that supports idea sharing, supports creating safe spaces, and supports those kind of conversations. And that needs to be repeated from the top over and over again. When we talk about safe spaces, historically in workplaces and currently, there are many groups that are marginalized in the workplaces. And I'm about to take a DEI slant on this here. But if mm-hmm. people don't feel safe at work, they're not going to feel safe in a conflict situation. And they're not going to mm-hmm. feel safe sharing their ideas to bring that conflict to a good resolution. So I think one of the most pressing issues facing CHROs, VPs of HR, and CEOs for that matter is the DE&I agenda, diversity, equity, and inclusion, making sure that people know that they're safe at work, that they accept people from different backgrounds and different ideas, and that there is an intolerance 
to intolerance within the workplace. So it's very important to enforce that as part of creating a culture where we can solve problems together. Now, if we're taking it from the other side, and we are one of these employees in a company that may not necessarily be pushing for, like, I love what you mentioned about no repercussions for speaking up, because that's often what is causing the psychological fear to speak up. If we feel like we are working and we are in that field where we can't really speak up or we feel so, what is your advice for people or employees in this culture? Great question. I think there's a couple of avenues that you can go down. One, participating in any employee listening that you can. A lot of organizations, especially larger and more established organizations, offer these types of avenues to speak up, but you have to seek them out is the unfortunate part. Sometimes these are focus groups. Sometimes it's as simple as filling out a survey. Sometimes they're one-to-one sessions that you can do with a facilitator. These are are common avenues within large organizations and established organizations that actually do make a difference. And I have seen them make a difference in organizations. The second avenue, of course, is a bit more informal, but a lot of organizations have informal or formal mentorship programs with people often that are more senior. Bouncing ideas off of more senior people, getting their perspective, and making headway for soft change can be really helpful. Think of a mentorship relationship as a two-way thing. Sure, the mentee is getting a lot out of it in that coaching and that mentorship in helping build their career. But also, think of it as the mentor's pathway to understanding what is happening at other levels of organization. And that's an important way to feed information upwards into the upper echelons of the organization. Finally, I hope people don't take this the wrong way, but no one is going to take care of you and your career except for you. So Mm -hmm. if you know you're in a place where you're not being listened to, where you're feeling like it's not a great idea to share your ideas, or you feel like you don't have the opportunity to be part of the solution and you've tried, then it might be time to pack up the laptop, pick up the bags, and and try a different organization that values the skill set and the ideas that you bring to the table. That's the, that's the advice I'd give to anyone. I think that that's really great. Oftentimes, a lot of people who are at work, they feel stuck and they don't feel like they can go and leave and they feel like that's the norm. It isn't necessarily the norm. And it's okay to be in an environment where, you know, people actually do respect you and people allow you to speak up. So I I agree. And thank you for normalizing that healthy work environments are a thing and people don't have to be unhappy. I've met a lot of people who are really unhappy at work and their common response is, well, this is work. Well, no, you can be safe. You can be happy at work. That's right. There are places that value your talents, value your perspective, and allow you to solve a really interesting problems and do mm-hmm. really interesting things in a day. And I like that, what you exactly what you said, Jacinta, we have to normalize that it's okay to be in search of an environment that welcomes you and your ideas. Mm-hmm. I want to now bring us back to problem solvers, because I love that you brought that topic up. So you mentioned how to become a better problem solver, but how do you define what a good problem solver is. 
Do you have certain metrics to say, okay, this person is a great problem solver if they come in with a data-driven approach or they back it up with data, they have this charming personality? Any metrics that you think you use to measure a good problem solver? Not in particular, but what I do think is that there are different roles in problem solving. And you have to find your own niche and your own role in solving the problem. So some people, any of us who've entered a case competition, by the way, I actually haven't done a single case competition, so I don't actually know. But I've been in many consulting cases for sure in real life, playing with playing with real money. (laughs) But there are always different roles on the team for different kinds of problem solvers. Some people are the connector of ideas, and those people should be measured on how well they bring together the different parts of the organization or the different parts of the team to come up with a collaborative answer that works for all parts of the organization. For some people, problem solving means connecting. For some people, as you suggested, they should be they should be measured on their ability to analyze data, to create a story out of it, to create an action plan out of it. For some people, that problem solving means data, means analysis and bringing life to the numbers. For some mm-hmm. people on the team, their role is the innovator, the creative ideas, cr- creating things that are truly unique and novel and can bring the firm a competitive advantage or bring the organization additional value. And so those people should be measured simply on their ability of their ideas to achieve the objective at hand, their practicality, their pragmatism, but also uh, their ability to create that unique advantage. Mm -hmm. And for some people, problem solving means bringing people together being the relationship person and being able to figure out how to interact with different people in order to make the solution actually happen. And they can be measured on things like their ability to manage change in order to get people to adopt a certain methodology or adopt a new system uh, and, and make sure that uptake happens through the organization, through the actual problem solving process. So, I know that's a really long way of answering your question, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, different people are measured on different things in problem solving because we all have different places and different areas to play in the problem solving process. Absolutely. Thank you. That's such a great answer. I was like typing and writing everything down. I want to bring us to a different topic now. And this is a very hot topic, which is the layoffs in tech. What is happening? What is happening currently with the tech layoffs and and why is this such such a big thing? And I recently, actually, like I think two days ago, heard about news about now companies trying to rehire some of the employees again. So what is happening in tech? I, I work in tech myself now, and that's hard. I'm not an economist, nor am I anyone mm-hmm. that's actually running one of these tech companies. But at the same time, What I can say is tech, like many other fields, whether that be natural resources, mining industry, it is cyclical. And that's one of the difficult parts about operating in this industry. We see that there's less investment going into tech. We see tech prices tumbling over the last number of months and increased pressure from shareholders on management to produce real results, produce profitability, and ultimately shift operations into turning positive cash flow and that's creating pressure on organizations to to produce 
and to show numbers and to cut expense. That feels like a really bad news story and really terrible. So what I what I will say is that for folks thinking of working in human capital or people within the human capital field already, human resources, etc., the great part is that we can pivot. You know, an HR person who's worked in tech has directly transferable skills to work in other growing fields that are hiring a lot, like healthcare, for example. So the ability to pivot, I would say, is enhanced relative to other fields. There are plenty of opportunities to jump in and, and try something new and, and leverage the skills that we've already built. That's a great segue to the next topic, which is if I want to get into human capital, but I don't have experience in this field, how can I get into it? Human resources is an interesting field. People come from a lot of different places to end up into human capital. A couple of things. If you're early in your career, what can help is professional designations. Show that you're interested and that you're willing to put time and investment into building out that professional designation. The second thing that really works is to network, network, network. Networking is important for any field, but HR professionals are especially keen on networking because of the nature of their jobs. Try to reach out for people. Go to a career fair. Send multiple email follow-ups with people. Try to find people on LinkedIn. Get names. Try to set up 10-minute coffee chats with people. These are the strategies that are proven to work and really show people interest and also give you valuable advice on what skills and what marketable attributes you should be building on your resume. And if you're more established in your career and want to get into HR, think a little bit about how you want to enter into the HR field. HR is pretty broad in the types of professions and the skill sets that are needed. Maybe it's talent acquisition, talent management, learning and development, organizational development, Maybe you're like me and you want to get into compensation or an HR generalist and be a true business partner to an executive team. All those are very legitimate paths into the human capital management field. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I want to touch on networking. How can people network effectively and not look and smell desperate? That's a very common question that I get all the time from a lot of my friends. How do I network and not look desperate? Well, first of all, I think being on both sides of this equation at various points, I think Mm -hmm. it's easy to think you're looking desperate when you're not actually looking desperate. So my advice would be not to worry about looking desperate too much. Um, But at the same time, first tip, try not to take too much people's time. People are busy. So Mm -hmm. I suggest asking for a 10 or 15 minute coffee chat with people. That sounds like something that most people could do. Try approaching people when they're asking to be approached. Things like a career fair, things like a coffee chat, things like a recruitment event on campus. Take advantage of every one of those opportunities to meet people when they've set aside time to meet with people. The second piece is to give people an out. And what I mean, and this is similar to what we do in marketing and sales, but when you're sending people a message, you say, I'd love to have 10 minutes of your time, but if you 
don't have the time, please don't worry about it. To give mm-hmm. people opportunity to get out if they need to gracefully, but also give them that opportunity to meet with you if they do have that opportunity. Then you don't look desperate, but then you're also approaching them with an opportunity to meet you. And mm-hmm. third, try to think of it as their opportunity to meet you. You have to, no one's going to, this sounds like a motivational speech. Nobody's <laughs> going to believe in you if you don't believe in yourself. So yeah. it's important to remember that just as much as it's an opportunity to talk to them about their career and opportunities in their world, remember that it's their opportunity to meet you and all the great things that you have going on too. So. Damn, I feel so inspired now. <laughs> I'm like, yes, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I also want to touch on another part that you mentioned, which is marketable attributes. How do you sell yourself and how do you tell a story of who you are and communicate your value effectively, especially in such a short period of time? Like 10, 15 minutes is very, very quick. How do you think that we can share our values of who we are the most effective way in just such a short period of time? One part of it is personalization of your message. Mm. You're going to talk to a lot of people and they're all going to have different backgrounds. If I go and I decide to go skydiving and I really want to go skydiving, I'm going to have a very different message for my best friend, for my colleagues, for my dad, and a very different message from my grandma. So how am I going to shape the same story, which is the story of me, to fit a different audience? I think that's an essential question. We can't just hand out mass cover letters with the same message, as tempting as that may be. And we can't go around telling the same story to people either. So my suggestion would be to do your research. Do your homework. Understand what might matter to that person. What skills they might be looking for. What attributes and what personality traits that they really value. And bring value to their their equation as well. And then tailoring your story to fit how you're meeting that value to them. I love that. Personalization, tailoring your message, and matching the values, what you're looking for, and this is what I am. Moving on to the final parts of our conversation today, which is all about hiring. What are the main challenges in hiring today? For employers, I think it's matching the right talent to the right position. Mm-hmm. That's hard. That's harder to do than you'd think. I think one thing you often hear employers saying is that we're having a really hard time finding the skill set in the market, or we really need to fill X position, but there just doesn't seem to be any candidates that can fulfill our wish list. And so to counter that challenge of finding the right people, the, the right bums or the right seats, if you will, is the fact that we might have to resort to growing our own. And that's hard to do. As I talked about at the beginning of the call, we're entering a demographic wave, and we've had for such a long time this labor surplus. 
is what an economist will say. We've had more people than jobs most of the time, and we've had a lot of skilled people that have good educations, good experience, good qualifications. Now, we don't necessarily have that luxury and aren't able to necessarily get that talent in the market instantly. So what we have to move from is, is shift from a acquire mindset to a grow mindset where we'll have to take the best candidates based on the behaviors, based on their attitude, based on their base skill sets, and be prepared to build from the bottom up. I think the human capital winners of tomorrow will be the ones building from the ground up, as opposed to trying to poach expensive talent from point A to point B, which may not even be possible in the future. Mm-hmm. I I just wanted to make a comment. So you've mentioned that you know we have a labor surplus before. We had a lot of people, but I would assume that we actually have more labor now, just because we have access to free courses everywhere and great quality skills. So I assume that we would have more people now. I'm like, oh, that's interesting that we do have all these resources available for free, and yet we are experiencing this problem. It's actually just a numbers game, really, right? Our number Mm -hmm. of consumers is still growing. In fact, and as our baby boomers leave the workforce or transition out of the workforce, we have less people simply to replace them within the workplace. And although we may have access to LinkedIn learning and amazing learning management systems through our employers and free courses offered by universities by distance, it doesn't solve the problem that There's simply not enough of us to replace the largest generation that Canada has seen, right? So uh, I think it's going to be a particular challenge in replacing the sheer number of people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. Back to your hiring point, you mentioned you have this problem with matching talent. When you are hiring, I'm curious to hear what you think. So a lot of companies now are using tools to read through resumes really quickly. And this can be helpful because you go over the basic requirements much quicker than what a human can do. So that's amazing. That's really fast. However, the challenge is oftentimes you might miss out on some profiles that have a slightly different profile to what the tool, let's say they use AI, had, and you might miss out on great talent. What are your thoughts on using tech tools to hire people? Hmm. I think there's a lot of value in it, but I think there can also be some pitfalls. It can be incredibly helpful in a lot of in a lot of ways. And HR technology can really revolutionize the way HR practitioners do their work. When it comes to meeting things like basic requirements or automating key processes like developing an offer letter or coming up with an interview guide that is tailored to somebody, or booking interview slots, or administering a, an aptitude test, for example. I think what is difficult is that at the end of the day, it is not a bot that will have to work with us, with mm-hmm. people. It's people that will have to work with people. If someone is insufferable, the AI bot might not find it. Or if I find someone super interesting and super keen and eager, the AI bot might not find it either. 
So I think it's important that we use technology to enhance our processes, enhance our efficiency, and free us up to do the things like talking to candidates, understanding how they think and how they work. And if I can actually see myself working with this person and being in the trenches, solving problems day in and day out. So trying to work with the tools the best way possible and leaving the humans to do those work, to talk to people, all these things, I think you still need both. So I completely agree. What skills do you think are most valuable for us to invest in and to eventually become a more attractive talent to employers right now? I think it largely depends on what field you're in and and what kind of job you're aiming at. One of the cliche answers is learning more about technology, understanding how to use skills, go program in Python, understand R, really be polished in your VBA. I could give those sorts of answers. And frankly, it would probably change in two years. So although technical skills are important for starting off our career, I think things that stand the test of time are things like relationship building, problem solving, strategic mindset, critical thinking. You made a great point earlier about technology. Technology can automate a lot of those administrative entry-level jobs that new graduates relied on for so long to get their foot in the door to understand the organization. With new technology, those jobs are disappearing overnight. We have to think about the skills that will help us market ourselves and put us a cut above. So again, problem solving, communication, relationship building, those are all the important skills that we can build a foundation for on our career. And before we go, one thing that we have to think about is what is our superpower? And what I mean by that is, okay, maybe we're not superheroes at everything. No, I can't go and analyze 10,000 lines of Excel data at night. No, I can't go off and create a beautiful PowerPoint deck that'll convince the board to change the direction of the company. No, I'm not a superhero in everything. But the good news is, No one is a superhero in anything either. So if I'm to pick one superhero power that I can market myself on, what is it? And being able to find that one superhero power that you can take out to the market and be able to sell yourself on is crucial. It doesn't necessarily have to be a certain skill, a certain piece of software. It doesn't have to be leading an organization of 300 people in your second year of university but it has to be something that you can sell yourself on to show that you are a special candidate and that you have a superpower. Ooh, I love that. What a great way to end the podcast. Find your superpower. (laughs) Thank you, Jeremy, for such a great episode. I learned so much. We went through so many different rabbit holes. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, no problem. I hope that you got what you needed. And that concludes this week's episode. You can reach out to the speakers on their LinkedIn. All the links are in the description. If you like what you hear, feel free to download the episode, follow, or leave a review. We'll be back next week exploring a new industry. I'm Jacintha. Be sure to tune in. And as always, thank you for listening.